Genesis chapter 48. Now it happened after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Then it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. So Israel strengthened himself, and he sat up in the bed. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time under, for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 3. The days of Jacob are about over, and this is the will of God for him. Life is made up of a series of days, and days all follow the same pattern. Night turns into day. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west every day, day in and day out. And this has been the cycle of life ever since God created the heavens and the universe. And this didn't stop or change when God destroyed all life on this planet, save eight and those that were in the ark. The sun still set, and it still rose, day in and day out, every day that the ark sailed on the ocean blue. And the same 24 hours is given to all creation every day. And most people, they don't wonder at this amazing gift. Most people, we just take it for granted. We take it as a constant that just has to happen. People are born. People live. People die. And this is life for most people. But this isn't the life that God wants his people, his chosen people, to have. This is not how God desires his chosen people to live. To them, to us, he has granted us no. Things that Jacob and Joseph knew. And in our chapter from today, things that we are supposed to learn as well. You see, it couldn't have been surprising to Joseph that his father was sick. He's old. He's attained to an age that seemed impossible. He's 147 years old. And once he heard that his dad was sick, he gathers up his sons to visit his dad one last time. Which brings us to verses 3 and 4. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you an assembly of peoples, and I will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. None of this was news to Joseph. These were all accounts that Joseph, and in fact all the sons and daughters of Israel had grown up on, because they, they at this point, people at this point, were primarily a people who learned and were taught verbally. They had used that supercomputer that God gave them to memorize things. This is how history was handed down from generation to generation. Not just the accounts of God working with men, but they memorized all kinds of stuff, like where water holes were how to get from one place to another, how to do a varied number of tasks. They knew stuff. Stuff that kept them alive and that preserved their heritage as well. But most importantly, Jacob and Joseph, they knew the truth concerning the God that had brought them to Egypt. And Joseph knew that what his father Israel had just told him was truth. And he knew that his father, in telling him this truth, was preparing him for the same thing that had happened with his father and with his grandfather. The blessing, the birthright, the covenant blessing was going to be handed down today. This was the pattern. Abram had first been given that covenant blessing back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which 
then passed on to the second son, Isaac, in Genesis 26.4. That wasn't the usual practice in that culture, the culture that was surrounding them. This wasn't the way things were normally done. The birthright and the blessing, they went to the oldest son. But they're dealing with God here, not with man. And the will of God trumps the will of man. And God has the right to do as he sees fit, which is what he had done in choosing Isaac. And then when Isaac had twins, it seemed that the passing over of the oldest had just been an anomaly because Isaac loved Esau, and he favored him over Jacob. According to Isaac, Esau would have the birthright and the blessing. That was the will of Isaac. Only this wasn't to be. This is something that Isaac should have known. Because we're told in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, that when Rebekah sought the Lord concerning why there seemed to be this wrestling match going on in her womb, that Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Which is then explained for us in Romans chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, where it says, It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So no, despite the fact that Isaac desired to bless Esau, despite the fact that Jacob had to buy the birthright and lie to his dad to receive the blessing, they had always been his. And this was the will of God for him, which was confirmed when God appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28 and then again in Genesis 35, where the covenant best blessing was then passed on to Jacob. And now, and now, today was the day. The covenant, the birthright, the blessing was going to be passed on. And Joseph could only assume that God was once again going to break those social norms. The birthright and the blessing, they wouldn't be given to the oldest son, to Reuben. They would be given to him. Which would only make sense why God had been with him his entire life had made himself known to Joseph and had blessed him at every turn. This had to be the reason why dad called for me, why he opened this conversation with me by recounting of the covenant promise and blessing of God. And he then must have been completely shocked when he heard verses 5 and 6. So now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your kin, that they have been born after them, shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brothers of their, in their inheritance. He must have been thinking, okay, this is different. This is new. This is not what I was expecting. And what in the world does this actually even mean? Well, what this means is explained to us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There we're told, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he profaned his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not recorded in the genealogy according to the birthright, though Judah prevailed over his brothers. And from him came the ruler, Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. What Jacob is doing here is giving Joseph a double portion of the birthright. Since both of his sons would now be treated as sons of Jacob, not grandsons. And in fact, Jacob was replacing Reuben and Simeon as number one and number two in the birth order with these two young men. This was a double portion for Joseph. But it was also a blessing for Manasseh and Ephraim. You see, as the only children of Joseph, who still was at this time the vice regent over Egypt, they could have very easily have taken over that family business and gone into civil service in Egypt. But what God is doing with them through this adoption is the same thing that is echoed to us in the retelling 
of the life of Moses as given to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, where we're told by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What Jacob desired was that he desired that these two young men, who were half Egyptian by blood, raised in that culture, in the opulence of their dad's esteemed position, that they, that they would be directed to, 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 to true royalty, to true riches in this life. And by adopting them, they would inherit the Hebrew lineage and be counted as shepherds, as the rest of the family. And their adoption brought them fully into the family just as our adoption has brought us fully into the family as well. But what are we supposed to make of verse 7? What, what does verse 7 mean? Now as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was some, still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Well, verse 7 is just further validation as to why Jacob would adopt the sons of Joseph. Because Rachel died in childbirth, thus preventing her from providing any further sons for Jacob. And now, in honor of her name and of her memory, Jacob is adopting the sons of her oldest son as his son. Leah had six sons. Rachel would now have four and all this is happening. This is just a conversation between Jacob and Joseph. And then after this conversation, Jacob, aware of other people's presence in that room, asks of them, verses 8 through 12. Israel saw Joseph's son and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And then Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your seed as well. And then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. There is a sweetness in these verses that I haven't personally known. This father and this son, they had a love for each other that isn't bound up in this time-space continuum. Remember, they had been separated from each other for many years. And after they came into Egypt, their interaction with each other, they must have been sporadic at best, since Joseph would have still remained very busy governing through the rest of the famine and then on into the years that came out of it. And then after recovering himself, Joseph then does something that we may not understand. Remember, he must have thought, I'm in line for the blessing, for the birthright, for the covenant. But he's wrong. And he must have been taken aback by what his father has said about adopting his children. But still he willingly submits to the will of God even though it doesn't directly benefit him, and it goes against even what he thought was going to happen. He doesn't argue with his father about this. He doesn't try to redirect his father's attention to the fact that, hey, do you remember it was God who brought me to Egypt? It was God who used me to save you and the family? Do you remember all of that? Maybe you should be thinking about that as you're doing this. No, Joseph proves that his heart is for the Lord and not primarily for himself. Which brings us to verses 13 through 17. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. Remember, Israel can't see. So that's why Joseph is putting his sons in this order. 
But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the, was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys and may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 17, but Joseph saw that his father set his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it was displeasing in his sight, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph's heart may have been submitted to the Lord. Remember, he knew the Lord. He had walked with the Lord for many years. He knew things about the Lord. But here, now, he's going to learn more concerning the God that he already knew. And the first thing that he's going to learn is that God will not be placed in a box. Saints, if you are a saint, you're meant to know God. We who have been redeemed of God, we are meant to actually know him. In fact, you are going to be held accountable for how well you know him, according to Luke 12, 48. And we're supposed to know him personally, not like a friend on Facebook, somebody that you truly don't even know, or maybe somebody that you might recognize as you go into the store. You're supposed to know the Lord. He is your Lord. He is our Savior. He's our Father. We're supposed to know him. And there are some things, some basic things that we're meant to know about him. We're meant to know that he cannot lie. And we're told this in Hebrews 6, verse 18. We're meant to know that he cannot change. And we're told this in Malachi 3, 6. We're meant to know that he cannot break his covenant promise. Psalm 89, verse 34. We're meant to know that he cannot be stopped or thwarted. Daniel 4.35, and this includes building his church, Matthew 16.18. We're meant to know that his word and his law cannot be broken, John 10.35. We're meant to know that he cannot stand sin, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. We're meant to know that he hates sinners, Psalm 5.5. 5. We're meant to know that he cannot despise a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, 17. We're meant to know that he cannot be pleased outside of faith. Hebrews eleven six. We're meant to know that he cannot be loved or worshipped too much. Revelation 4, 8. And there's one more thing that we're meant to know. You're supposed to know about God that he cannot do. He can't stop loving you. Jeremiah 31.3, Deuteronomy 7.7-9, 7, 7 1 John 4.19. Did you catch the commonality in all those things that we're meant to know? They all come from the Word of God. And these are all truths that we can, or we are meant to know about God by studying his word, by meditating on his word. And sadly, many of us don't know these things. We don't know God. God desires that you know him. He's already done the hard work. He purchased you off the auction block of hell. He ransomed your soul from the eternal damnation that you deserve. He gave himself for your ransom. He paid the eternal price for your eternal soul and he's regenerated your stone-cold dead heart to be able to see him as God. He has given you the heart that allows you to love him. He's done the hard work. And in doing so, he desires that you, you use the heart that he has given you. And he desires that you bring glory to him in your life. 
and you do this. You bring glory to God. And you do this in doing one thing. What is that one thing? Would you be surprised if I told you it's encapsulated in the Word of God? Listen to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Just listen as I read Chronicles 16. Listen for action words. They're commands from God to us. Things that we are meant to do. Things that you do to bring glory to God. They're at the beginning of this section that I'm going to read. And then God is spoken of in the middle. And then at the end, again, the commands are given to us. 1 Chronicles 16. Give thanks to Yahweh. It's a command. Call upon his name. Make known his actions among the peoples. These are commands. These are actions that we are to do. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Muse on all of his wondrous deeds. Boast in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek Yahweh be glad. Inquire of Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wondrous deeds which he has done, his miraculous signs and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, O son of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, which he cut covenant with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance, when you were only a few men in number, of little account, sojourners in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and against my prophets do no evil." And again, there's that center part. Those, this is, he's talking about God. Then he goes back to the commands. He says, sing to Yahweh in all the earth. Verse 23, proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations as wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor, majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Lift up an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is established and it will not be shaken. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Let the sea roar as well as its fullness and let the field exult in all that it is in it. Then the trees in the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh for he is coming to judge the earth. Back to commands again. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for his good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Then say, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from among the nations and to give thanks to your holy name and revel in your praise. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people said, Amen, and praised Yahweh. Verses 8 through 36. The one thing that you do is encapsulated here. And these are all actions. Differing and varied actions. And they all bring glory to God. And they all produce one thing. Knowledge of the holy. And this is how you bring glory to God. You willfully choose to use the heart that he has already given you in this life to obey, to learn of him, to submit, obey, to deny yourself and obey. 
And the more that you know the Lord, the more that you will praise him. And the more that you know the Lord, the more enthralled you will be about him. And obedience will not be an issue. And the more that you know the Lord, the more that you will jettison every weight and the sin that easily besets you. And conversely, the less that you know the Lord, the less you will praise him. And the less you will pray. And the harder obedience will be for you. And the harder those weights will be to drop away. And the greater the sin that easily besets you will beset you. But saints, know this. That no matter how well you know the Lord, you will always be learning more about the Lord. Joseph knew the Lord. Remember, he walked with him for 40 plus years at this point. But here, now, the Lord, through his father, was about to teach him again that he doesn't know the Lord all that well and that the will of the Lord will stand no matter what. Even though Manasseh was the firstborn and should have been the one who held prominence, who would receive the birthright, that belonged to his younger brother for no other reason than the election of God. And then in what Jacob says, we are meant to find that this old man, who seemed to have for so long been wanderingly, wandering aimlessly in despair over the loss of his favorite wife and son, we find that he actually knew things about the Lord that Joseph didn't. Again, saints, you bring glory to God when you use the heart that he has given to you to know him. That when you in faith, when you do as Jacob has done and you choose to obey him as Jacob has done, choosing the hard path, Jacob's life wasn't a bed of roses. The heartache that he had over his wife dying and his son being lost was true heartache. He felt this. And this was the will of God for him. And he willingly chose to obey God in his will. And because of it, he knew things about the Lord. So let's look at what it is that this old man on his deathbed, what it is that he says that will bless Joseph. Because he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The first thing that we're meant to see is that the God that Jacob speaks of here is not an out there somewhere, kind of this distant kind of God that is just thrown around generically with a name, God. Here, he uses the personal Trinitarian name of God, Elohim. This is the God that he says that Abraham and Isaac knew, the God that they walked with. And it's this same Trinitarian God that he says has been his shepherd all the days of his life. Elohim. Jacob, he knew the name of God. He, he knew that God knew his name. In fact, it was this same God, Elohim, who he had been so intimate with that he wrestled with him. It was this God that changed his name from Jacob to Israel. How well did Jacob, Israel, know this God? He, well, he knew him well enough to call him his Goel. What is that? That's the name that he gives God when he says that he has been the angel that has redeemed me from all evil. 
And that's the first word, or the first use of that word goel in the Bible, which is rightly translated as redeemer. And the meaning behind that word is very telling. It means the avenger of blood, the nearest relative that was charged with hunting down and bringing to swift justice a murderer. That was the statute that God put in place back in Genesis 9-6, saying, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. For in the image of God, he has made man. And this is how Jacob saw the angel of the Lord, Elohim, who his father and his grandfather walked with, whom he had wrestled with. I've made the statement before that the saints of old, they were made saints in the same manner and by the same God that we are. They were saved by grace, by God, for God, and through God. And they knew that their Redeemer, their Goel, lives. Job said this very thing in Job 19. Listen to this saint. And Job was a saint at the same time that Abraham was a saint. Listen to the God that he knew. He said in Job 19, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That, they were an iron, that with an iron stylus and a lead that they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer, my Goel, lives. And at the last days, that he will rise up over the dust of the world, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself will behold, and whom I will see and not another. This is how Job knew his God. And this is how Jacob knew the Lord. Elohim, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the God who had purchased their souls from hell, who had redeemed them from the death that they had killed themselves in. And the one thing that Jacob, that Israel desired for Joseph, the one thing that he desired to pass on to him was for his sons to know the same God that he did. The same God that his father and his grandfather did. Parents, especially men, let me ask you this. What blessing do you desire to pass on to your children? What is it, the one thing that you think will be the biggest blessing to them when you are gone? Because this culture, this world says it's stuff, land, cattle, cash. That if you loved your children and your grandchildren, you will leave them an inheritance that will bless them all the days of their life with comfort, ease, and lots of stuff. That's the God of this world. But how many of us here feel the same way? So much so that we desire that we leave a nest egg for them. It's important for us that, that we leave a nest egg for our children instead of actually investing that money into the kingdom of heaven for his glory. How many of us here, at the end of our days, at the end of our life, will be buried and be remembered for a few kind actions? I remember going fishing with my grandfather and not for the relationship that we have with the Lord. How many of us will be looked at by our children and our grandchildren and have them say, I am striving to be like him in their relationship with the Lord. They knew God. This is what Jacob wanted to be known for. This was the blessing that he desired to bless Joseph with, that his boys would live a life that he had lived. And he knew, he knew that that life would come with hardship, with toil and trouble. 
but it would be a life that would be marked by them knowing their Goel was walking with them. This is how he desired to bless Joseph. But Joseph saw that his father set his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it was displeasing in his sight. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head, verses 17 and 18. Joseph was human. He was a man just like you and me. He knew the Lord. He wasn't clairvoyant. And he didn't know the Lord's will in all matters. And this is one matter where he thought that he knew the Father's will. But in the end, he had to submit to his father, both his father in Israel and his father in Elohim, to the will of the Lord. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He will also become a people, and he will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his seed shall become the fullness of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And it was after this blessing, these final words concerning the sons who were now the eldest of the sons of Israel, that the father of Joseph then turns his focus and his attention back to his son, the one that he's loved so dearly. Verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers, and I will give you a portion, one more portion than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Saints, as you're sitting here this morning, if the Lord is your Goel, then he desires you to know some things. He desires to know that we are saved, and even what that means, as told to us in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. He desires that we know that while we will all die, that we will all live again. John 5, 28 and 29. This is an important fact that we're supposed to know. Because if you don't know this, if you don't know the Lord to this degree, then you will live primarily concerned about this life, about this world, about this inheritance. And he desires that we know that our Redeemer lives Listen to how sure of this fact we are to be. 1 John 5, 3, 2, and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has been manifested as yet what we will be. Sorry. It has not been manifested yet as what we will be. We know. We know that when he is manifested that we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our Redeemer, our Goel, our King, our Father, he desires that we all do things for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this is the will of God for you. How do you do this? Again, that 1 Chronicles 16 chapter tells us. And again, there's another place we can go to. Hebrews chapter 10. That's a great place to see how you do this. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're turning there, grab a pen also. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, it starts off by reminding us who our Goel is. It says, Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the, high, the house of God, again, again, we are to know this. If this is true, what he is saying, since this is true, since this is true, we are to know this. This is how we're made right with God. And then beginning in verse 22, we're told how we bring glory to our Goel. Let us, again an action word, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Again, willful actions taken by a sincere heart with full assurance, not of your goodness or anything of yourself, but being fully assured of faith and knowing you can do this because your hearts have been sprinkled. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. Again, what is water representative of in the Bible? It's that thing which we are told that Jesus washes his bride with in Ephesians 5. The water of the word. Verse 23 of Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised, he who promised is faithful. Again, we are to hold fast because God is faithful. And it's because he, because he is, that we are told that we are to act. Again, let us. Again, a willful decision on your part. Let us, not being confident in any decision that you have made or even in your ability to do this, but being confident in the fact that God is faithful. Make the willful decision to be resolute in your faith. And sometimes it just seems implausible. Let's be honest with each other. Sometimes you could be in the midst of praying and you could be thinking, what in the world am I doing? I'm talking to the ceiling. Sometimes it seems implausible. Sometimes it can seem like you're crazy to believe the things that you do. And outside of the testimony of God, the faithful witness of God, we could be accused of being crazy. But we don't have to think that we are crazy. Because we have the demonstrated performance of God who is our hope and who is faithful. And then verse 24 of Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In that faith, in our confidence in the Lord, in our drawing near we are told to think. We are told to consider. But we're told to consider not about us, but about others. And this is where we can be nearsighted and even ignorant considering our, concerning our own lives. Because the life of Jacob was a life that was lived in submission to the Lord. The life of Joseph was a life that was lived in obedience to the Lord. Their lives were lived in such a way that their actions have been used to stimulate others to good deeds. Paul said, we are to imitate him in imitating Jesus, to follow him as he follows Christ. God desires us to know stuff. He desires that we understand that our lives affect other people, other members of our body. Hebrews 5.12 is a great example of this. Just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Yes, the sin of Adam affected, infected all humanity, and nothing has changed. There are many within this body that can stand as witnesses of how sin, even within the church, how it affects a body. There are some of us here who have been witnesses to how sin has, in a church, rips that body apart, acting like the cancer that it is in killing that body. And here we are told to consider. And again, that means to think. What are we supposed to think about? How my actions affect me? 
No, not at all. I am supposed to think about how my actions are going to affect Kevin. How my actions are going to affect Colleen. Do I even consider them in my actions? That they will affect them either good or bad. How many of us here would be willing to tell others Follow me as I follow Christ. You, dear saint. Doesn't matter if you're 13, 31, or 83. You were meant to know the Lord in such a way that you can honestly say, This is his desire for you, saint. For you to be able to to know him in such a way that you can say, follow me as I'm following Christ. You're not saying, follow my personality or my personality traits. What you're saying is, do you see Christ in me? Then look at the willful choices that I've made in my life in obedience to the word of God and then follow them, mimic them. Christ was in submission. Be in the word. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Be in prayer. Live sacrificially. Live communally. Make the church your life. You're wondering, what can I do that is a surefire way to stimulate others to loving good deeds? How you can get to the point where you can, with all, with all confidence, tell others, follow me as I'm following Christ? How about obeying verse 25 of Hebrews 10? Not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. How often, when you're deciding to not go and be the church, Do you actually think of others within your body? I bet, in fact, I can almost guarantee that when you decide not to be the church, not to go to church, you need to understand you are the church. When you decide not to be the church, you never think, how will this affect the other members of my body? What are you talking about, David? Well, this is one of the things that God desires us to know. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 through 27. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the members which are lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God desires you to know that he has specifically designed you to be part of this church. If you're a member here, you're part of this body. And when you're not here, when you choose not to be here, the body is lacking a foot, a finger, an eye, a kidney. It doesn't matter what part you're playing. When you're not here, the body is lacking which is why we're commanded to be the body, commanded to meet, commanded to stimulate each other to good deeds. And this is the will of God for you. And you can rest assured that as you make your goel your life, as you seek him and his righteousness, the more that you do this, the more that you will come to know him, And the more that your life will be centered on and around him. And just like with the life of Joseph, the Lord will very often surprise you by the surprising things that he will bring into your life. 
things that we sometimes call good, things that we sometimes call bad, things that we sometimes call hard. This is the amazing thing about walking with the Lord, that no matter how long you walk with him, no matter how much you invest into him, no matter how much you give him, you can never outgive God. No matter how much you determine to know him, you will never be able to mine the depths of the riches that is God. And God will always, always be surprising you by demonstrating his will to you. Don't think this is true. Think about the first disciples, the disciples of Christ. They found this out. They spent three years living with God. They lived with God, lived with God for three years. And at the end of that time, they were surprised. They were shocked. They were outraged by the will of God, the Father, in giving the Son for the sins of the elect. And then they were shocked by the will of God demonstrated through the power of the gospel. And then they were shocked by the will of the Lord in the conversion of their most hated of adversaries, Saul. And then they were shocked by the will of God in the inclusion of the Samaritans and the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then they stopped to seeming to be shocked. And they just started experiencing the unexpected, the irrational, the ridiculous, the impossible, This is life with the Lord. And this is his will for you. Saints, God desires to take you on an adventure. He saved you. So I can say with absolute assurance that his desire is to take you on an adventure. Adventures are never easy. But they're always good. And this, this is the surprising will of God for you. Saints, know your Lord. Do not be content with the way that you have known the Lord. He has so much more for you. Let's pray.